Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Doc's Talk Story, where we share the journeys, accomplishments, typical day, and advice of doctors practicing here in Hawaii in the hopes of inspiring listeners and helping medical students like you and me navigate the wide range of specialties the medical field has to offer. My name is Enze, and I will be your host for today. Thanks for tuning in. On today's episode, we have Dr. John Garvey, a gastroenterologist at Windward Clinic in Kailua. Dr. Garvey attended medical school at Rush, a residency at Washington University in St. Louis, and continued on to a fellowship at UCSF. Dr. Garvey you know, has practiced all over the United States and has trained in many different places, and so I think he really brings a unique perspective to us, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. So welcome, Dr. Garvey, to the show, and thanks so much for joining us today. Good afternoon, Enzi. Thank you for having me. Just to start, can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Um, maybe how did you get to where you are today, and uh, when and why did you decide to go into GI? My initial uh, think, thought process was uh, in order to go into surgery, which was my initial um, desire, a year in internal medicine would be a great um, uh, training platform. I was convinced and other people had told me that medicine internships were the best type of internship to, um, to get. So I went into the residency program intending really to just do the first year Um, It was during that time that I became interested in gastroenterology and then I was convinced by the program directors that wouldn't it be a waste if you didn't finish the medicine program. And I was glad that I did finish the program and then my interest in gastroenterology continued to evolve. And I think that I saw gastroenterology as maybe this opportunity to blend interest in GI surgery with GI medicine. So there, there was some connection piece for me and uh, fiber optic endoscopy, flexible fiber optic endoscopy was um, part of the training program in these days. So there really was a procedural aspect of it as well. So I thought maybe that would satisfy my interest in actually, you know, doing, doing something with my hands. Did you consider any other specialties along the way? I still thought about surgery, mm. um, and we can maybe get to this later. I actually, even after becoming a gastroenterologist, I actually had applied to surgical training program. I'm already in now a gastrointestinal. We can mm. come to that later, so I wasn't totally convinced, but I didn't consider any other medicine subspecialties, mm. just GI. Yeah, so... Um Let's talk a little bit about kind of the subspecialties within GI. So you mentioned kind of like a surgical kind of subspecialty. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about all those different types of subspecialties within the GI field? So the general gastrointestinal fellowship um, has evolved. From my time, it was two years. Um, and at the completion of two years, you were actually skilled in a whole range of procedural Um, endoscopic procedures Um, over probably 10 years at least 10 years they added a third year Um, but 
even in the third year, they still didn't allow you to do advanced endoscopic procedures. There is now a fourth year in which uh, candidates can elect to go into an advanced endoscopic fellowship where they would um, study advanced procedures like uh, ERCP or endoscopic ultrasound, um, stenting, a more complicated polypectomy. Um, there, within the field, there has evolved um, subspecialty uh, programs in inflammatory bowel disease, subspecialty programs in motility disorders, um, uh, just to name a few, there are others. Uh, hepatology has evolved as also a separate discipline, um, but my current understanding is that in order to get into a hepatology slash hepatology transplant program, you have to be admitted to a, a basic gastrointestinal fellowship program, but you would, after probably a year of basic GI, morph into the hepatology aspect of training. Mm -hmm. So these kind of subspecialties, uh, do they add more time to the just the general GI fellowship? Is it kind of something that you have to attack on like another year or two after finishing? At least a year, and okay. it could be longer. In hepatology, it would be a couple of years at least. Mm -hmm. I see. So while we're talking about kind of the process of applying to um, different subspecialists, let's maybe backtrack a little bit and talk about um, applying for the fellowship or like your internal medicine residency programs. Could you tell us a little bit about how that was like for you? The decision, unfortunately, um, for, or I believe it's unfortunate, is has to be decided in the second year of your internal medicine residency. And um, at that point in time, you would actually make application very similar to how you would apply to medical school. Mm -hmm. So understanding the concept of applying to medical school is, is that there's a uniform application that's a there's a centralized place where the application goes and all of the accredited programs participate in this I guess uniform program um, and there is just as there is in a medical school or in residency programs there's actually a day at which the residency of uh, the fellowships rather are offered to candidates um, this has been in place for a while and it was an attempt to correct a lot of under the table um, relationships that mm -hmm. were um, going on in other words we're going to promise you a fellowship outside of the match so mm -hmm. ideally everything is done within the context of the match and try to create some fairness in the process mm -hmm. um, could you speak a little bit about like the competitiveness of the gi fellowship um, how competitive is it compared to other fellowships? I, I believe as we speak now in um, 2020 that GI is the most um, competitive of the medicine specialties. Um, and very competitive, I guess, when it comes to the... Um, better programs and there's a hierarchy of programs similar to the fact there's a hierarchy of residencies a hierarchy of medical schools um, but uh, it's extremely competitive I suspect that a part of that has related to the um, income generation possible within the field of gastroenterology um, I, I wish that wasn't the case but I think that's possibly why it has become so competitive 
So what makes an applicant stand out given that it's so competitive? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, the, the usual answer is that you have to identify or be identified as someone with some academic potential. That would be probably the answer that most gastroenterologists would give you out of the gate. I think that's unfortunate because in reality, how can someone in the second year of medicine residency really identify that they have this great interest in academics? Um, at a minimum, it would have to be formative. But I would say that it helps to do anything that can make your application look more robust. If you have participated in a clinical research study, you have a mentor, maybe you're working in the lab if you happen to be interested in bench work. If you've published or been on a publication, all those things can help to bolster, bolster your application. I, I think it's a bit unfortunate, but I think that is the case that the, the more robust your um, application can look, uh, the better your potential is for one of the top programs. Mm -hmm. So let's say a student does a lot of research in medical school and eventually wants to pursue a career that's more focused on research, let's say clinical research, um, and not like the basic science um, PhD kind of research. Um, could you talk about some of the opportunities that might be available for this kind of student who might want to take a more research-oriented clinical career? Many of the top programs have two tracks. Um, they actually have a clinical track. You would apply and designate that your interest is clinical gastroenterology. Now, that could be clinical academic gastroenterology, but you want to be a clinician mm -hmm. primarily. They also have tracks which are funded for the purpose of um, creating um, academicians in which there would be a couple of years of your fellowship which would be protected for research time. Mm -hmm. That could be, again, basic research, research or could be clinical research depending upon the institution that you were in. I see. So it's good to know that there are those opportunities out there for those who might be interested in a more clinically research uh, path. Let's switch gears now and talk about what a typical day looks like for you. Yeah, I think this is true for most gastroenterologists, that the day is divided between endoscopic practice and clinical practice. Um, I um, maintain this throughout my uh, clinical career where I would only be in the endoscopic lab for half day uh, if I was in the, uh, the endo lab in the morning, which is more typical, and then the clinic would be in the afternoon. Uh, clinic would be very much like the clinics that you've students have probably experienced up to this point. It's a mixture of um, consultation and follow-up care. Mm -hmm. What is the best and kind of the worst part of your job as a GI doctor? The best part is, uh, I believe, the longitudinal care of the patients. I really do and have always enjoyed um, getting to know a patient and uh, participating, I guess, in their care. And it's a shared responsibility. Um, worst part, 
I, don't, I can't say that there's a worse part. I, I think a lot of gastroenterologists would probably say functional bowel disease is the most challenging part for them, functional being those patients without a structural cause for their illness, i.e. Uh, irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, but again, I think if your interest is in longitudinal care, you get to know these people, and I think that the frustrations can be lessened um, by just getting relaxed, getting to know the patient. I, I, don't, I don't think there is what I would classify as a undesirable patient in my practice or our field. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned kind of the best part being um, that you have patients over a long term. Um, mm -hmm. Would you say that most of your patient population are long-term patients and you kind of see them through many years or are most of them just case by case and you see them one time? I think there's been a change, um, I would say, for the first 20 years that I practiced is that um, I had many longitudinal patients. A good example would be cases of inflammatory bowel disease, mm -hmm. Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. Uh, those patients were uh, clearly long-term patients uh, whose care needed to be uh, delivered by a gastroenterologist. Uh, I think in more recent times, it's been a little more of the one-offs. Um, we see a patient uh, uh, take care of a, pr a problem or a procedure and then sort of move on. So I think, th I think there's less of that longitudinal care. Mm -hmm. So with this change, um, now that you see, what is the most common diagnosis um, of your patients? I could probably list about five. Mm -hmm. um, abdominal pain, chronic. Um, I'd include functional disorders, and that would be dyspepsia, um, alteration of bowel habit, um, uh, esophageal distress, namely um, GERD-type complaints, um, cancer diagnosis heavily involved in screening, but also in other um, GI cases, and probably um, evaluation of abnormal liver chemistries, patients who may have chronic liver disease would be among the top five. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite one of these that you like to see all the time? I, it, I would say um, I still enjoy seeing patients who have inflammatory bowel disease, and I also actually um, have done a lot of uh, care in the biliary tree, biliary pancreatic work. I've enjoyed those two population subsets. Mm -hmm. Is there something about these patients or like their cases that makes it really interesting for you? Well, for the biliary uh, patients, I think that it can be very gratifying um, in the sense that you can not only diagnose, but if you know how to do advanced procedures, um, EUS, ERCP, you can actually definitively treat um, and sometimes even I think, I think perform a life-saving procedure, say in a patient with cholangitis. Um, um, and in the inflammatory bowel disease patient, there's been this evolution towards biologics. So uh, in the early days, um, it, it was common to see a Crohn's patient that in the first uh, decade or two of their lives, they had two or three operations. Uh, with the uh, development of all the biologics, I think we've totally re reversed that around and we've been able to, I think, long-term remit these patients and with all of the biologics. So that's been a really exciting uh, development in gastroenterology. So while we're on this topic of change, you mentioned that you were practicing for about 42 years already. 
Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how the GI field has changed so far in your career. Yes, um, it's changed um, pretty dramatically. Um, the first uh, two decades of practice, um, the practice consisted basically of consultative medicine, consultative gastroenterology. Um, Endoscopy was seen as a complement to the consultative practice. I would say in the last 20 years, the evolution has been kind of the other way around. The practice have, have majority tended to be emphasizing the endoscopic part of the practice. And I think uh, with the tendency to minimize the amount of consultative or, or clinical work that gastroenterologists do. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you see any more changes that might be coming in the maybe in the next decade or so? Um, uh, I do. Uh, I think that, um, example, um, in uh, a large amount of clinical time these days is spent in screening for colon cancer. Um, I anticipate that For average risk patients, screening will not be done at the end of a colonoscope. I think it will be done through laboratory investigations, through blood testing, fecal testing, etc., a combination of both. Um, And I think that if you removed um, half of the screening colonoscopy population from general gastrointestinal practices, there'd be a void there. So there's going to have to be the need to evolve in your practice in terms of how you're really going to um, want to structure structure your time. Um, I would be hopeful that there would be a return to more clinical activities, meaning clinic-based activities, involvement in um, what's going on in the office and in longitudinal care. Um, being willing to follow, I get complicated patients again, uh, rather than shunting them off. Uh, endoscopic practice will continue to evolve. Um, I know that if you look at surgery and you look at just the role when I was in, in initially interested in surgery, there was just open abdominal surgery. That was it. Okay, what evolved was laparoscopic surgery. Now we're at a point where minimally invasive surgery is the way surgery is done 95% of the time for gallbladder disease, 90% of the time for uh, appendiceal disease. I think that evolution will continue as surgery has into the robotic um, aspects of things. And I would look for an endoscopic practice. There continued to be an evolution of better ways to do endoscopy um, and um, I can't quite perceive that but I have a feeling that that's got to happen Um, so it's going to be different Um, uh, there are still some areas that are um, relatively unexplored in the um, GI tract. The small bowel would be one in which small bowel investigations, because the diseases are less usual, um, are still relatively unexplored. I think that there's going to be a lot of opportunities that way. I think better understanding of uh, a lot of these functional 
disorders uh, is going to also occur. There's a big move, as you probably know, in terms of study of the fecal biome. You know, mm-hmm. so once we can understand the makeup of the biome, we may find that the way we're managing diseases is totally flipped on its head, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, addressing alterations in the biome may be the way to not just remit, perhaps cure disease. You know, you've seen this. Um, the best example I can think of now is the way we treat C. diff, recurrent C. diff, um, with fecal transplantation. Well, that's, you know, that's just I think the start of an evolution of practice. Lots, lots of things are going to happen. Yeah. So um, you mentioned robotics, and I um, kind of want to talk a little bit about that for just briefly. Um, but there's always been this discussion of technology advancements in medicine, and how there might be the potential of some practices or some fields being replaced by artificial intelligence or some kind of computerized system that makes, you know, clinicians or practitioners kind of irrelevant. And I'm wondering if you had any idea. Any ideas on that topic? I, I, I can't foresee that there will not be the role for the um, clinician, uh, even in the even with the evolution of artificial intelligence. Um, uh, as we, we've said for a long time, and I still think it's true that it's a blend of art and science, and I think it will always continue to be the blend of art and science. Um, I think that um, I think that's the part. The best doctors, I think, uh, most people would agree, have this uncanny sense of sort of this second sense, uh, or sixth sense. Maybe it would be a better way to say it is of kind of the what's going on, mm-hmm. you know, or it just doesn't feel right to me. You heard a lot of physicians say, you know, how, why did you think that way? And he says, well, it just didn't seem right to me. I don't think a machine's going to be able to do that for us. Uh, I think that machines are going to assist us. I think they're going to make life better for us, uh, but they're not going to replace us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's so true. I mean, even as a just a second-year medical student and with the limited amount of patient encounters that we've had, you know, each one has been so unique and so fulfilling um, in the sense that there really is that bond that forms, even if just for, you know, if 30 minutes, um, I think there is that kind of unique nature of a physician-patient bond that forms really quickly and definitely can't be replaced by a uh, robot or artificial intelligence. Um, let's move the conversation back to your GI practice and what it's like to be a GI doctor. Um, and so my question I have for you is, uh, how often do you have to take call? And is that something that is really common in the GI field? I, I think there's an old saying, quote, everybody has to take call, end quote. Um, and yes, I, I had to take call until I aged out of call. And I was grateful to be able to age out of call. Um, early in my career, I had to take two f- forms of call. I had to take both internal medicine call and I had to take gastroenterology call. Um, that was probably for the first 10 years of practice. Then it was just GI call. Uh, and the call basically is twofold. It's call for the practice and it's also call for the emergency department. Um, which is still uh, a requirement in, in almost every hospital in order to get uh, 
active admitting privileges, you have to accept a certain uh, uh, level or amount of emergency room call. It's a requirement for privileges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, as medical students who are kind of still, I guess, undifferentiated cells, we also talk a lot about work-life balance. And since we're kind of on the topic of taking call, um, could you talk a little bit about what your work-life balance has been like? It's certainly improved um, as I've uh, gotten away from the emergency room call after hours call. Um, in, for the most part um, of my practice life, which was both in private medicine and academic medicine where I was a clinical academic, um, I would say that um, Monday through Friday I typically would have probably a 10-hour day. Um, so I think 50 hours a week and that could morph to 60 hours a week depending upon the call situation. I would say once call was eliminated, um, the day became a much more sort of nine to five um, kind of a practice. Mm-hmm. So you still have enough time kind of outside of the hospital or outside of your practice to maybe take up some hobbies or, or do things that you enjoy? Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's fair to say that there is time for um, your personal life, uh, um, for family life, for children. Um, I think in the former days, the term was we were married to our practices. Mm-hmm. I think you'd hear that pretty commonly from senior doctors. Um, I, I think it's better. I think that just as the residencies have developed um, work hour rules, I think that the work-life balance uh, concept has become now just a fundamental part of, um, of life for practicing physicians of all disciplines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I kind of want to talk a little bit about like physician burnout since we're kind of on this topic anyways. Um, have you ever experienced burnout? Um, I know you mentioned you know, how uh, the older docs say that you're married to your specialty or your practice. Um, Have you experienced kind of that burnout previously and has that kind of improved over time? I haven't experienced the phenomena of burnout in the sense of I never liked being a doctor or practicing gastroenterology. What I experienced was the sense of I would become um, I don't know if it's complacent with what I was doing and I needed new stimulation. And so the way that I dealt with that was to change um, not just practice locations, but I would, I would change sort of the, um, the, the way in which my practice was, was, was working for me. Uh, maybe I'm being clearer by saying um, I had been in a, multi-specialty practice to start my career. I had a solo practice for uh, five years. I then went to a mono-specialty group where it was just gastroenterologists, and then I went to an academic career. The intervals in all of those scenarios, as I'm describing to you, was someplace between five and eight years. I think that's the way I dealt with what we would call um, burnout phenomena. I've never... Um, um, even to this day felt that um, I didn't make a good decision to go into medicine and and into gastroenterology. I would do it all over again if I had to. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it's so incredible to hear your passion and drive and enthusiasm for medicine. You know, it's really inspiring for me, and I'm sure inspiring for our listeners as well. And thanks for sharing about how you deal with burnout. I think that's an important conversation to have amongst the medical community, since it, the health of the provider and the pr- practitioner you know, really does have an impact on the health of the patients as well. And you mentioned that you practiced in a lot of different locations and moving around uh, pretty often um, on the mainland and then eventually coming here to Hawaii. Um, I was wondering, now that you've practiced here for a considerable amount of time, whether or not you see a need for more GI doctors in Hawaii. Yes, uh, we have an aging uh, physician uh, cohort. That's not just in gastroenterology, that's in most other disciplines. We absolutely need young physicians. They're the lifeblood of, I think, medicine. Um, and uh, I, I'm very um, encouraging, or would like to be very encouraging, of uh, getting more fellowship programs here in Hawaii so that our uh, trainees, uh, JAPSM trainees, can stay here if they desire to. They don't have to go to the mainland for, for training. Uh, we need to uh, uh, replete uh, the ranks, the outer islands are are um, virtually devoid of any significant amount of subspecialists, um, and so there are opportunities on the outer islands and definitely still in Oahu. Mm-hmm. And um, just a fun question to wrap this all up: uh, If you could give yourself, you know, your past self one piece of advice, what would it be? Well, follow your dream. I think um, that that would be my advice. Um, do it for the right reasons. Um, I've previously discussed with you the wrong reason, which I think is financial. I don't think the money is ever going to make it right. I think what will make it right is, is if you have a dream, if you have something that really interests you, um, you can wrap your um, self around it and grow with it for a very long time. I still think I'm growing in gastroenterology. I mean, I, I, I think that um, I try to the best of my ability to stay abreast of what's going on. And I think that I look forward, even though I'm not going to be actively practicing gastroenterology, to seeing what developments are made in gastroenterology. Maybe some of these predictions I talked about earlier, are they going to come true in my lifetime or not but uh yeah find something you love um and get into it uh, really you know and and work work as hard as you can um and that'll that'll be very satisfying um and give you i think immense uh, personal satisfaction yeah that's such great advice you know I, I think especially for us as medical students who are really just starting the journey in medicine uh, which will eventually become a career and, and perhaps even more than that you know something that uh, transcends just the uh, the career and profession aspect of it and you know i think that advice to look at the big picture to keep in mind the end goal i think that's really important uh, especially in a profession like this where 
it can often, like we've talked about with the burnout, it can often be a lot, you know, it can, it can feel overwhelming at times. So I think keeping in mind, you know, your dreams and, and trying to follow them, uh, you know, to the best of our abilities, I think that's great advice. Well, I think this is a great place to stop. Thanks so much, Dr. Garvey, for coming on this show and for sharing your vast knowledge and wisdom of medicine and on life. Um, I was really inspired by this, and I'm sure our listeners really enjoyed this conversation. And I also want to thank you for your, you know, your service to the Hawaii community, um, you know, through your story, uh, training on the mainland and practicing on the mainland and finally ending up here. I think we're really lucky to have a provider like you who is so dedicated and passionate about medicine. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. This was Dr. Garvey on Doc's Talk Story. Join us next time as we continue to talk story with all the wonderful doctors we have here on the islands. And don't forget to follow and subscribe us uh, if you would like to get notifications on our newest episodes. And please, we would love to hear your thoughts and, and your feedback on our podcast. We would really love this to be for you and for it to be helpful. So please let us know your thoughts either via email or in our feedback form, especially if you have a particular request on who you'd like to hear from next. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and wear your mask.